Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Starting. Hi, this is Dr. Maggie Perry with Tell Me What You're Proud Of, and I'm here with Dr. Reed Wilson. Dr. Reed Wilson is a licensed psychologist in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and the author of six self-help books, including Stopping the Noise in Your Head, Don't Panic, and Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents. He is a founding clinical fellow of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America and a fellow of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. His self-help site, anxieties.com, serves 80,000 people per month. Dr. Reed Wilson, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, Maggie. Hi. And so as I discussed with Sally and Marty in the last couple episodes, my favorite part about being a psychologist is watching people build resilience and use flexibility to face themselves with courage, compassion, and humor, especially when they've been far from those skills with me. Um, I'd love to discuss these concepts today. In our time today, let's discuss where things started for you, how they've changed over the years, and when you see people recovering, what they're doing well. So let's start with where things started for you um, in treating anxiety and OCD. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. I was a psychologist in private practice up in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts back in the late 70s. And uh, the media started doing stories around panic disorder, agoraphobia, women who are trapped in their homes and so forth. And, And so all of a sudden we were all therapists were getting through the door these people with panic disorder and no one really understood how to treat it. I had a background in in treating chronic pain patients so I knew some things around relaxation and hypnosis and biofeedback and such so that gave me a leg up for treating them but you know it's insufficient just doing generalized skills like relaxation or meditation for most of these problems. And so I started looking around the literature. There's very little to find. Um, And so I was this young Turk back then and decided at 28 that I would uh, write a book on on panic disorder. And so I did that. and, And that was that first book called Don't Panic. And that's how I got started in all of this. Um, Several years later, I I met Edna Foa, who was a colleague, friend of mine, and we decided to write a self-help book on OCD, which was called Stop Obsessing. Um, So that allowed me to dig much more deeply into the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. And then all the other disorders have kind of followed along over these 37 plus years of work. Great. You see the yes. gray hair, right? So Yeah. Well, so can I just go back to what you just said around meditation and relaxation? 
um, don't work for anxiety disorders or can't be the only thing. So let's just start there. Why, uh, why can't people just kind of meditate themselves out of anxiety disorders? Well, first off, it's, it's a tremendous skill and useful skill to learn how to meditate because we're, especially in concentration meditation, because we're working on noticing extraneous thoughts, unhelpful thoughts, thoughts that we don't want to be paying attention to right now because we're trying to focus on our mantra or whatever it may be, and we just gently let them go. And that is a generic skill of what we want in all the anxiety disorders and OCD, which is when an intrusive thought comes up, when a worry that is not helpful shows up, I want to be able to step back and catch it and then let it go without blocking and forcing it. So, so that is quite useful. But as, as you're hearing me describe it, it needs to be brought into the fire, really. We need to know how to do that in those moments. Um, and I think that's why it, it's not sufficient. Uh, the other thing I would just say about relaxation is, is what we might call arousal incongruent to be in a anxious panicky place and have my intervention need to be to relax so you know i'm in an aroused physical state now i've got to move to an incongruent physical state which is a very difficult task in those moments so what i pay attention to is looking for interventions that are arousal congruent, which means I don't have to calm down right now to manage this moment right now. So that's, we need to bring it forward into those moments. That's where it's most useful. And there are lots of folks that I never do anything with formal relaxation or meditation. We just go right to work on what we're talking about right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think in particular, um, people that have been in um, psychotherapy, CBT in particular, for a long time that start to think if anxiety shows up, then I'm doing something wrong uh, can be really problematic. So it seems like that what you're describing is the exact opposite of that. Um, can you can you say more about that kind of belief change for people? Well, I think belief change is the right term to use in terms of what I'm looking for. I we I like to at least in the beginning start to personify and externalize the disorder, take it outside of them. And because, you know, when people are strong, when they don't have the diagnosis anymore, the disorder is outside of them. <laughs> so that's the goal we're looking for anyway. And so we want to be looking for what are the strategies of that disorder and then let's figure out what the counter strategies need to be for that so it really is a I, I constantly bring my hands up above my head to say we've got to we want to go up one level of abstraction and not focus so much on the topic the content the the theme of so many people's anxieties or or obsessions because if you're diagnosed with an anxiety disorder it's not about the topic it is about how i'm responding to the topic so 
obviously, if somebody has claustrophobia and they think they're going to, you know, the air is going to run out in the room and they're going to suffocate, we have to correct that thought, that content. But our job is to get, push it aside so that we can deal with what I think is more central to all of these disorders, which is this intolerance of uncertainty and this what we call anxiety sensitivity. And if we can get to those, although obviously, as you know, the anxiety disorders and OCD can be quite complicated with lots of different variables, but pragmatically speaking, in a, in a therapeutic and self-help approach, if we just think about uncertainty and distress and go after those generic themes, then we're going to start having a better chance to win. So instead of calming down, I, you know, again, an, an attitude shift is I'm looking for distress. I'm looking for the circumstances that provoke these symptoms in me because they're in the way of what I want to accomplish in my life. I think we, if we even think about exposure, I mean, we think about uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. There's a lot about values uh, that, that we talk about. And so having an outcome picture that's important to me and having a sense that this block is in the way, I want to push into it to get to the other side. So it's, it's, a, it's a more aggressive approach than we might think of when we think about acceptance and commitment therapy, where it it's a, has a lot more to do with detachment. Um, we might think, and a lot of the trainers would agree, I think, in, in ACT, which is we want to bring that mindful approach into the fire, not get rid of distress. What I was wondering is about this word opportunity. So people may understand, for instance, um, if I'm anxious about getting a job, then I could see that anxiety before the interview maybe as opportunity or other other um, states of nervousness that seem directly tied to an actual goal. It seems like people sometimes are more willing to have willingness to have that experience and see that as I need to get through this moment in order to achieve that goal. But uh, sometimes I hear less willingness or less, um, um, yeah, less willingness to shift an attitude into opportunity when, for instance, the thing that they're anxious about is getting out of their apartment. Um, or doing some everyday task that they feel everyone else is able to do easily, like going to the bathroom or getting on a train. Um, so can you say more about the opportunity in uncertainty in little moments that um, are triggered by anxiety disorders? Sure. Um, I, I don't get the distinctions that you just made about those. I think all those sound like the same thing to me in terms of what we have to face. I think, you know, let's let's back up for a minute and say, okay, so I have a goal in the short term and I've made a commitment to that goal. I'm not going to, you know, fill in the blank, eat sugar for five days. I'm not going to drink alcohol in the month of January, whatever it may be. And what happens is that that commitment falls apart in a moment. 
And so to maintain my commitment to whatever my goals are, I need to handle the moments. So the work I focus on is moment by moment, because that's when everything falls apart. So now back to what you're saying, if I'm trying to get out the front door to walk to the mailbox, and I'm afraid of my symptoms when I do that, I am not looking for the opportunity to get to the mailbox. I'm looking for the opportunity to provoke that uncertainty and distress, because that's specifically what I'm taking on. Specifically, I'm going after feeling uncertain, literally feeling anxious, and simultaneously wanting to have that feeling, not even willing to have that feeling but wanting to have it. And I think there is a distinction even between those two words. If you you just hear me say it, well, I'm willing to be anxious right now versus I want to be anxious right now. You you hear that subtle difference. And and that is an attitude shift. Why would I want to talk like that? Well, because one is it's opposite of what the disorder needs me to be doing which is I need to not want it. You know, if you ask a client, what, well, how does your body and mind respond to you going, oh no, here it comes, I don't want this, right? We know what happens. Then, you know, epinephrine starts to get secreted in the brain, the rest of the body, because the amygdala goes, trouble, let me help you, right? So if, if that's what it's doing, then we want to do that the opposite of that. And and the other, I would just say neurologically, we won't get into neurology much here, I, I imagine, but you know, neurologically, I've got this neuropathway of fear associated with this circumstance, whatever it is that I'm working on. I need to access that neuropathway in order to modify it. So if I need to therapeutically access that neuropathway, if I need to do that, then I want to do that because that's how it's going. So, you know, it's, it's like I take ownership in the work. I don't want somebody to be sitting here going, my therapist says I need to do this and therefore I'm going to do it. So I, I play a, place a lot of emphasis on the client's ownership in doing the work. I don't want anyone to comply with my requests. So if I've got that, if I'm going into that circumstance, I'm walking down the sidewalk to the mailbox, whatever it may be, accessing that neuropathway of fear. So that's good news. I've got that. Now, if I want it, if I really frame it up like this is, I don't like this. I don't like this feeling. I wish this feeling wasn't here. You can have all those thoughts. And in this moment, I'm working. So I want to have the feeling. And now I'm beginning to lay down another track, another neuropathway right next to, and I would say on top of this fearful reaction. So it's almost as though I'm talking to my amygdala saying, just kidding, you don't need to juice me up anymore with all that epinephrine. I want this feeling. And that's, you know, in, in a long-winded way to tell you that's 
what I how I would distinguish some of the stuff that we're doing these days in in the work I'm doing. Okay, great. Yeah, I agree with you on all that. Two questions that were coming to mind is one, um, okay, I'm with you, or I think a lot of my clients will be with you until they're in their actual life circumstances. And and then it just seems too hard uh, to be very, very anxious in whatever they need to, to be doing for whatever criteria they think it's not okay to be anxious. And then the other, besides just I want to be willing to want the anxiety until it seems like there's going to be consequences. The other thing is like, (laughs) thank you. And then what do I do once I'm there? All right, I'll get myself all anxious. What do I do once I'm there? So if you want to comment on either of those, that would be great. Okay. So what was the first one? So the first one is I want to be willing to want the anxiety until I'm in my actual life. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, one of the ways that we can say it is, I'm working on wanting this feeling. I can at least get there as opposed to wanting it. And again, since this is a a cognitive model, a cognitive strategic model, we're not doing exposure treatment. We're doing behavioral experiments. So if we can get a model of how do I approach this and then, you know, if they're working with me individually or in a group, let's construct some experiments, you as a client have this opinion about what's going to happen. I'm suggesting maybe this will happen instead. Let's see if we can get an experiment to find out what it's like. And the early experiments are just, can I generate any degree of uncertainty or distress about my theme? And then when I do that, can I work on wanting it right? And not escaping if I can and so forth. And let's learn from that and we can build out from there. And so I think that's, you know, how I would think about a little bit. People, you know, they get overwhelmed by, we just have to keep talking about it in order to try to help them get a little more courageous. Uh, as, As you know, most everybody we work with wants uh, some degree of certainty about how things are going to turn out. And unfortunately, everything that our clients want, they none of it they get to have, right? I mean, all the work that we do with clients is work that they don't want to do. I mean, that's the nature of the disorders. And so often I call this persuasive therapy because I really am trying to change their mind about how they solve this problem. Because everybody that we see has solved their problem to some degree. They have been successful in some degree. And so they really have to trust us because they don't want to just let go of, you know, if we're doing a trapeze, you know, I'm going to let go of my bar and then hope you grab me as I swing across. I mean, it's a, it's a big ask, And so a a lot of what we need to do as therapists is to build a sense of placebo and and a a sense that we understand what's going on and what needs to happen so that they can trust us. And then if we can break it down to smaller steps for us to for them to do some experiments, then maybe it's not so tough. So and, and lastly, I would say is you get to have both those voices in your mind at that at those moments, you know, I hate this feeling. This is awful. This is too much for me. And keep going, keep going. 
<laughs> keep going. You can do this, right? So both of those have can can are going to be present. We just need to elevate that voice that says, "I got this. Keep going. I can do this." Yeah, I think another thing that's really wonderful about going after distress itself as um, the what you're wanting is that once you see that pattern, then everything builds on everything else. So small moments of distress have an impact on larger goals or larger moments where it seems like it matters more that you relate effectively to that moment and vice versa. Bigger moments can then um, trickle down into smaller moments. And I agree with you about that it's about moments because I think that's the major strategy that I try to teach is that the patterns are all the same, that you're never, you're never, you've already experienced everything you're going to experience in terms of um, the sensations and the possible thoughts. And now you just have to relate to it differently. Yeah. And I'll just add one other thing. As they try these things that we're talking about, we also don't want them to be checking in immediately to go, how's that working? Is it, you know, because people have different definitions of how it's working and, and the definition so often automatically is it's that intervention is working if I'm starting to feel better, I'm starting to feel less anxious and so forth. And that can't be the measure in the moment. Obviously, all of us want that outcome to be that my distress begins to diminish. So, but the outcome picture and the momentary event are going to be different, which is, and, and how I would say it to them is just, you just need to run the program, run the program, run the program, run the program. That's being successful. And then over time, you can start looking back and going, oh, all right. I mean, we don't want it to be too much time because we're trying to do these experiments and they need to gather something, but just got to make sure that it's, you know, 12 seconds later, they're not going, is that working? Because as soon as they ask that question, that's an implied directive to the amygdala to secrete more epinephrine. You know, is, you know, am I calming down or am I still in a threatening situation? And that will cause the amygdala to respond to the possibility that it's still a threatening situation. Yeah, I agree. I think in addition to um, the leap of faith that clients take and kind of like trusting what we're saying, I find that group can be really helpful because people are in different spots. So other people can kind of lead the way and say, you know, I've tried this and it helped mm -hmm. and that can give people uh, motivation. Um, one thing that shows up often is people just get really worn down. Like it is really tough to be really, really anxious day after day. Um, and I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Like, uh, how do you help someone be willing to want their anxiety when they're really, really burnt out by being really, really anxious? Well, first, let me just say something about group. Group is a tremendous resource for people. I love doing group. I, I would do group every day if I could. I just, I, I, I can't do it that way. And, and so, but, so I, I really support any kind of group endeavor. You get to see yourself in other people. You go, oh, that's me. I'm doing it. We can play, you know, we can go, we, we as therapists can, you know, go, um, you know, Donald, did you hear what Gertrude just said? Does, does that rem remind you of anything about yourself? You know, so all of that is, is good. And, you know, I, we all have clients who just 
work so hard. I was just talking to a, a, a graduate student at, at Duke the other day and with a pretty strong OCD. And I was saying, you know, I've seen him for a while. It's like, you work so hard. He, I really want to support how hard he is working to catch on to the principles. And he happens to be struggling with a disorder that is pretty tenacious and, and it does get exhausting. And so to have, again, back to group or, uh, or a therapist who understands uh, that, you know, sometimes you've got to, you know, take a break. Unfortunately, I had a, had a young 14 uh, year old girl who, who was doing great with her again, OCD and, but she had a, a, a spinal issue and had to go into the hospital for surgery. And, and over while she was there, her, the disorder was just kicking her behind. And, you know, what we decided uh, in our conversation is we're just suspending all the work that we're doing right now. And to the degree she needs to do the rituals, then she does the rituals and gets beyond them and then lives to fight another day. And it just ended up needing to happen for her. And, and that was kind of an extreme case. But, but still, I have great empathy for people who work that hard and feel exhausted at the same time. Yeah, I totally agree. I do think it uh, it can be help, important to distinguish between functional goals and distress goals. So sometimes you need to commit to something that just maintains your life, whether that's getting up and out of your bed, making it to work on time, um, you know, fulfilling obligations related to your family that maybe you have to avoid or compulse a little bit your way through. But at that point, from my perspective, we're not targeting um, distress tolerance and increasing uh, willingness or wanting. We're just keeping you in your life. Um, so those can seem, I think they can sometimes seem mutually exclusive, but if framed up correctly, um, both matter for um, well-being. So um, yeah. thank you for that. Um, okay. Another topic that I'm uh, wondering actually on this note is how you understand, how you see recovery, given that anxiety disorders are chronic intermittent conditions. Um, what what is recovery from your perspective? Well, first off, I go back to what treatment is. And, and I, I think sometimes as therapists, we make this a, a mistake. Again, my opinion, when we target the symptom of the month and go after it specifically, and if we don't go up one level of abstraction to the disorder itself, um, because anxiety disorders and OCD tend to run the life cycle, we, the world cannot afford to have people every time they have another event to come back into treatment and do a one-on-one -on -one intervention for that. So I, I do feel like if we can continue to work on what, what are the basic principles, what are the basic guidelines that have gotten me this far, you know, very often when somebody's doing well in treatment, um, you know, if they've, for some people, as you know, the light bulb kind of just goes off in their head and they go, oh, that's what's happening. And this is how I'm contributing it. And I need to do that instead. You know, and if they have four or five sessions and are, you know, coming up like a phoenix, I'll say, hey, look, what if tomorrow I see 
10 people in a group who are very much like you, what would you say the principles might be for them to approach this problem? And just by posing that theoretical question, I begin to listen to what are they adopting as those principles? Because the other thing that tends to happen when you get well or when you no longer have your disorder is you set down your skills and and that's expected you're not you don't you don't have to keep your skills there but then you get hit you know by another brand new obsession or another panic attack or whatever it may be and you need to then brush off your skills again so if we can get people to have a, a, a set of principles that they build out of then they're going to be more self-sufficient over time. Yes. So I actually think this is a really great transition from my, in my thinking to over to the fitness analogy that now that the way that we understand psychological flexibility and its contributions to well-being as skills, not some underlying subconscious process to uncover, I think there's a really like, uh, you know, maybe people will be upset that they had to come into therapy in the first place because they were in so much distress that they needed professional help. I see that actually at this point as a major opportunity because other people that never hit the point where they're distressed enough to seek help might not ever come up with a strategy for how they're going to relate to their mind. But if you have a reason to get that strategy, then you have that strategy for the rest of your life. And again, because distress is distress, so whether you're up against the kitchen sink or some other thing that you deeply value, it's the same process. And I think actually setting down your skills would be the equivalent of an athlete saying, like, once I'm in good shape, then I don't have to exercise anymore, which I completely disagree with. And I think most athletes would also disagree with. Do you have thoughts there? Yeah, well, um, sounds like you and I disagree um, because I, I, I do believe when I am over my disorder, I don't need to continually be reviewing and keeping fresh my skill set. I don't. There's. I don't tend to have a need for the skill set that we're using to address the symptoms of the disorders themselves. If I've got some psychological um, management, uh, you know, over time strategies, that is a little different. But I think, you know, you just, you, you, if you haven't had the disorder for X period of time, and then suddenly a new obsession shows up, or you have hypogondriasis, you know, you had severe health um, fears, and then that kind of quieted down, and all of a sudden you started getting a pain behind your left ear and then you go into a have a tizzy fit that's a clinical term you know what tizzy <laughs> fit is right right you know you're, you're just going to get caught off, caught off guard in that moment then you got to at some point go oh i'm doing it again right and then you bring up your skills again so i think that a little different in terms of that whether there's a direct analogy to athletes having to stretch every day musicians okay, having to practice their music every day. I guess I'm open to that, but I guess if the major skill is I'm always open to the possibility that I'm going to be anxious again and willing to go towards that, won't, wouldn't that apply at any time? Sure, but I don't have to keep telling myself that over and over again. 
if everything's okay, everything's okay, and I'm not going to bother with, don't forget to be ready at any moment because things could show up. Well, this is year three. Do I really have to keep – that's all, almost like having that approach on retainer in some way. And, and I, I think it's un, almost compulsive if I feel like that's a mandatory requirement for me to stay – ready and on guard, it's okay to drop your guard and get hit again and then recover from that. I think that's, I think that's okay. And, and it's, that builds strength as well. Okay. I also like that as a, so as a framework for what recovery is, is you want to put that into um, some more words? No, you go ahead. Okay. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that you hit a point where you've used your skills enough that you got through wherever you were stuck, then it's okay to drop your guard. And if you happen to get stuck at another time, you might be uh, kicked down, but then you can access your skills again. Yeah. You, I mean, that's the risk that you take. You drop, you drop your, you don't, again, if we use the word obsessive compulsive, you know, I don't have to be obsessive. Oh my God, what if this happens again? Am I ready? And then compulsive, no, I remember what my skills are. This is what I'll do. You, you, there's just no way to hold on to that over months and months when you're doing fine. And then if you need to recruit all that stuff again, you'll try to you know, brush off your skills or come back in and have a, a, a little brush up of, of skills with whoever you were working with. I want to back up to one other thing you were saying. Uh, or maybe think of it, I'm going to lead with pretty much everybody I see in a cognitive, cognitive behavioral approach because so many of the anxiety disorders and symptoms of OCD are, if I could say, this primitive. And sometimes traumas of the past are still kicking around inside of us that are getting expressed in these more primitive ways like a panic attack or uh, some specific obsessions. So I'm going to lead, you know, what I would, would say is we can still work on those other issues in psychotherapy. I think, you know, as therapists, if we're only trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, we're going to lose as often as we're going to win. You, you need to be exposed to a lot of different types of therapies, but we can lead with and reduce panic attacks or reduce obsessions and then come back and look at other events like traumas. And sometimes I was have a, a whole video of, of a woman I've worked with, Mary, um, who we did very intense work in one single session. And then she went out and did some real heavy duty exposure that night for her because she caught on to it all. And when she came in the next morning for the, the second of two sessions in, in very close proximity, she reported all these memories that started floating up around traumas from the past. You know, and I was saying, well, why do you think last night you're unconscious allowed those to unfold again because she hadn't thought of those for a long time. And her response was, because I can handle them now. You know, that she said, you know, I think the unconscious puts some of these traumas in a box because they're, they, it doesn't feel like your conscious mind can really handle it. But given what 
I accomplished last night, I think it kind of, so there was kind of a, a conscious, unconscious integration where she, you know, it was painful to remember those things, painful, but they were available to her. And some of them included some uh, avoidances that she's not ready to tackle right now, but she could imagine doing it. So that's, you know, all I wanted to say around people are complex. Personalities are complex. Lots of people have had traumas and, and such and abuse and neglect and so forth in their past. If we can quiet down the more primitive expressions of them, we can get a hold of that other stuff, which is important to get a hold of, too. Yeah, I completely agree. I like the metaphor uh, when the house is on fire, we don't you don't look for the cause. First, you get some water and put out the fire. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in some some anxiety disorders and uh, manifestations of OCD, from my perspective, are completely biological and they there's not necessarily anything else going on. But also sometimes once um, once people have better tolerance of their anxiety sensitivity, they can also do some other work. Yeah, the corollary of that is if we're working with people who seem to get confused about what we're saying, um, sometimes they cancel appointments, they don't do their homework and so forth. Those are also times where we might back up and punt a little bit, back up and go, well, is, is this disorder protecting them from having to address something else that they perceive at least unconsciously as more threatening and that's why they're they're remaining stuck in all of this so so there are are times sometimes therapeutically to decide let's look around to see why there might might be so much resistance because as you know you know most of the problem here besides misunderstanding some things is it's resistance. And if we can, it's not so much what we have clients do, it's what we have them stop doing, which is to drop their guard and, and stop resisting. Yeah. And I want to sum up here. I think this is a uh, kind of good place to summarize that when I, in anything that I'm doing, whether it's like the weekly reading, community time, small group groups, or individual, I'm always looking for when people are stuck, why are they stuck? And I think the particular phrase, tell me what you're proud of, is my attempt to get information without triggering shame. So even if every other moment of the week, um, people are avoiding or compulsing or doing things that are against their values, if there's one thing that they're doing right, that we can find and um, exaggerate or generalize over into other moments, um, that's a place that we can start to help people get unstuck. Yeah, great. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategies shared here. Thank you.